Good afternoon, listeners. Today we are going to talk about the coronavirus, COVID-19. Simple message to start with. We are not medical professionals. There is going to be no medical advice. If you want medical advice, go to the internet and look for any of the official resources. What we're going to talk about today is the social, political and economic implications of COVID-19 how the media is responding to COVID-19 and how the government, in particular the Australian government, is responding in relation to other countries. Thank you for joining me, David. I won't shake your hand. That's all right, man. I won't lick your hand. (laughs) I appreciate it. Well, I try not to touch your uh, microphone cosy after either. <laughs> Wait, but this is the problem. Seeing I check where the microphone is with my chin periodically. Yeah. If there is plague on it, I'm doomed. <laughs> so it's a good thing I'm not real worried. Good point. I would recommend I, I particularly take a notice of the, the WHO in terms of some of the medical advice because you would imagine that they're the ones who are going to be controlling this with respect to any and all cultural yeah, they have the most data from the most places with the you know, the biggest range of cultural norms. Yeah. So if they say to us, stop shaking hands, then that probably means something. Yeah, exactly. In my case, where one hand is on the cane and the cane handle, I don't even want to know what lives on it mm. based mm. on the number of things I touch in a day and my cane touches in a day, and that the other hand I use to make sense of a world I can't see, I'm going through a lot of hand sanitizer. <laughs> Yeah, which is difficult to get a hold of, believe it or not. It's okay as long as you use the cheap ship brand from the supermarket. Yes, yes. So, And that's an interesting case, I guess. There's many factors to this, right? One thing that is for certain is that novel coronavirus or new coronavirus, whichever you would like to... Or COVID-19 for sure. COVID-19. Which is actually not much easier to say than the others. No, not really. But it has an extreme potential to be dangerous. However... And, and and likely will, I don't think we've seen, uh, I think it seems as if we're only seeing the start of this. Well, if it's in its current form, the bit of information I wish was at the beginning of every news bulletin mm. is at present, based on the people treated so far and the information so far, approximately 85% of people who get it will be sick for no more than a week mm. and it will be no worse than a cold. Yep. So the implications of that are in its current form, it appears it's spreading fairly seriously, mm-hmm. and yet person-to-person transmission in Australia is still remaining quite slow. Yeah, It doesn't seem to be hitting children, which is really good. It's hitting old people and people who are immunocompromised. Yep. Now, they're the two audiences you would figure would always be vulnerable. Yep, uh, so, obese people as well. Yeah, again, immunocompromised yeah, yeah, offers so. a consequence because yeah. with obesity often comes autoimmune disorder, yep. which is a form of immunocompromised Yep. System. Ex-smokers. I mean, it all comes under that banner, I think, immunocompromised. Yeah. So the interesting thing with this is how many people have got it but just think they had a cold. So my thought was, okay, listeners who are not from Australia, we have a descriptive word in Australia for males of a certain kind. They're called blokes. (laughs) And the only thing less likely for a bloke to do than go to the doctor is for a bloke to go to the ballet. Yeah. Yep. So how many blokes have got a cold, feeling a bit rough, coughed up a chunk in me lung? Yeah. Oh, yeah, but I'm not going to the dock. 
I'm sure a shit nut got on the ballet. <laughs> <laughs> so on the basis of cultural norms, mm. is reporting accurate? On the basis of the fact that we have a massive level of underemployment in Australia, even if people thought they had it, as long as it was only cold-like symptoms, could people afford not to go to their couple of shifts? Mm. So the rubbish we've been hearing the last couple of days that our federal government will come up with a massive package and it's going to involve investment support and loan relief and Mm. blah, 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 blah. Well, how about they actually do the thing that would actually work and say any casual employee who misses a shift will pay for it. Mm. Instant social impact instantly takes the pressure off that people could self-isolate if they need to Mm -hmm. or self-isolate if we end up literally with quarantined cities, you know, like Italy. Mm -hmm. I think I've jumped into about five items in less than two minutes here. It, well, Obviously, it, I did want to talk about it, this without but, realizing it. But it affects, yeah, yeah, it affects so many different things. Whilst it is frustrating how it has been reported, and you know, it's blown out of proportion, and um, it has caused hysteria in ways that you know cause a little bit of misanthropy, misanthropy, whichever way you want to say it. I don't care. Uh, it, it, loss of faith in humanity. It's not something to laugh at either. No, laughing is stupid. Mm but blowing it out of all proportion. At the moment, we have a fairly infectious disease with a mortality rate 1% higher than flu in a bad year. Mm -hmm. That's bad, but so is the flu normally. Mm -hmm. For over 80s with bad lungs or who are immunocompromised, the flu is potentially lethal. Mm -hmm. That's what we've got at the moment. I well, so flu in a bad year, I'm not sure, but uh, I had heard that the estimates were going to be uh, the... the, um, death rates were going to be uh, something like 10 times the average of flu by the time it re- reaches its peak. Please wait. SARS was 10 times the flu. Yeah. This is higher than the flu. Right. But at the moment, yeah, it's creeping higher. Mm. But, okay, let's use another geographical example. The Italians appear to be the country under siege at the moment. Yeah. Let's look at where it kicked off. It kicked off in northern Italy. Mm-hmm. Now, if we've got any demographers in the audience, please feel free to write in and add to what I'm about to say. It is one of the oldest bits of Europe. It has more old people proportionally mm-hmm. to almost anywhere in Europe. Now combine that with Italian culture, which is a very much people-connected-to-people culture, mm-hmm. where in a lot of cases, a lot of villages are full of people in their 60s or older, where their children and grandchildren have all had to move to cities. Mm -hmm. They go to the bakery or the cafe every day, not so much for the bread and coffee, but for the social connection. Mm -hmm. Now unleash COVID-19 in that environment. Yeah. How bad does that look? Yeah. Let's add another string to Italy. There was an Italian doctor from a northern city on the BBC this morning, and I wish I could do his accent because it sounded so cool. I can't, so I'll just try and do it as me. (laughs) But he goes, our intensive care unit is overwhelmed. We're above 50%. (laughs) I'm like, what? Since when is above 50% overwhelmed? overwhelmed? Unless all the government are funding is 25%. Yeah. Yeah. Could someone please address this for me? Are Italian ICUs incompetent? I doubt it. Hmm. Or are they funded for only 25% use and therefore 50% is crushing? 
So is there a problem that the system can't cope or that the system wasn't funded and personneled to cope? That's an entirely different question mm. and I've not heard that addressed. The other thing that I you know, was really interested in yesterday in Italy is it appeared people were just willy-nilly ignoring the quarantine. It was becoming a joke on social media to go out and find an open bar and go out and party. Mm. Last in, night in, in Italy. In Italy, right. Across Italy broadly. Last night, one of my favourite YouTube channels is an amateur Italian historian who's into medieval armour and weapons and putting all his spare cash into armour and training to be a knight. Mm. He's the coolest dude. Very cool. Yeah, he's just got back from 90 days in the US. The flight from the US was to Lisbon in Portugal. From Lisbon to Italy, he described as being the closest thing to plague on a plane he's ever seen. (laughs) Just people coughing their guts up with probably just conventional colds, but not putting masks on, not getting a bunch of paper towels from the crew and coughing into tissues or paper towels or napkins, just turning to the side and coughing into the space. Mm. So he's at home with a pretty horrific flu that his doctor is pretty sure is just the flu. And like I said, the problem is he's sitting there like you do when you're bored home for 14 days, looking at social media and YouTube, looking at all the Italian footage of young Italians going out and partying, going, eh, why would I stay home when I can party? Oh, God. And he said even if his flu, you know, if he recovers quickly, he's still going to self-quarantine because he doesn't want to be out there with them. Yeah, no kidding. So we've got an overly old population, a potentially underfunded medical system, and young people who normally pay no attention to the government who now pay even less attention because it doesn't suit they need to be entertained. Yeah. That's a whole different problem to COVID-19. No, because well, realistically, what I think everyone is upset about, I think in Australia there has been a lot of commentary on the hysteria. What everyone is upset about is that it's been made to be a much bigger problem than it actually is. What are highlights for me, and perhaps I think this is where we can go with this, is the potential vulnerability, let's say, that we have to being upset to things like this. Um, and, and we could talk for a whole other podcast on antibiotic resistance or other kinds of things. But as a good test case for how we would actually cope if everything went to shit, really, it's not been reassuring. Well, when John and I were in Canberra, we got told by a very serious and senior person that Australia has two weeks of drugs. Wow. That's it. And we can't produce most of the ones that people need because we – well. We don't have the manufacturing facilities because we've never called it a sovereign capability. You know, for Blind Insights listeners who don't listen to Strategicon, John Bruni and I just got back from nine days in Canberra working on our defence grant project and you know, talking to very senior people about how little time we actually have stockpiles of important things. You know, most important drugs Australians need will be gone in two weeks. Mm. if we can't get resupply. Fuel, the numbers vary depending on who you talk to, but it's under two weeks. And as we've seen from people punching each other over toilet paper in Sydney, there is now a social delusion slash meme that clearly you can wrap toilet paper around your head six times and it will act like a P95N2 mask. (laughs) Guess what? It won't. 
I did not know that. That's awful. <laughs> well, again, I'm assuming they're going to wrap around his head six times. Oh, I see. I was, why the hell else are you stockpiling toilet paper? Oh, right. I see. Yeah. No, and isn't that um, like if you had the crap scared out of you so bad you can't stop crapping? It's <laughs> isn't it so telling of perhaps the kinds of attitudes that let's say the Australian has uh, Australian population has toward manufacturing in Australia we, we are completely unaware of the things that we actually do manufacture because they're not right in front of your face like Holden yeah. it's something John and I want to write about is this idea of sovereign capability mm. what is the minimum capability we believe is necessary for a country to have mm-hmm. so my argument would be we need one drug factory that we subsidize that is sophisticated enough if push comes to shove, it can make most of what we need in a pinch. Yeah. It doesn't do it normally, or maybe we do make drugs normally a small proportion so we know we can do it. Yeah. You know, we would need to manu- you know, manufacture most emergency equipment at some basic level. Right. Like we need one plant mm. that can make N95 P2 masks. Mm-hmm. Well, you'd hope that you everything that you would need for, let's say, a war effort as well, so engines, things like that. Well, that's the thing, sovereign capability. That's where I think we need a proper debate on this. Because mm. at a minimum, you need to be able to deal with a highly infectious, but thankfully not horrific level mortality mm. medical situation like COVID-19. But this is, this is the better end of the, the options. Mm. You know, how much sovereign capability do we want for different things? Ironically, we now are getting them the capacity to build a lot more of the munitions we need for the military than we've had for decades. Yeah. So thanks to the Afghanistan-Iraq experiences, we're willing to up sovereign military capability. Yeah. But that is going to be used more rarely... Yeah, true. ...than sovereign well-being capability. And uh, I think that's the phrase I'll use, sovereign well-being capability. And let's say... So we keep our society well. I'm sorry. Let's... Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to put it as well. And you could... and And then imagine all the things that you can involve from something like the genuine progress indicator. Mm. Um, yeah, you want to manage GPI. Yeah. So you need sovereign well-being capability yeah. to make sure that genuine progress indicator mm. doesn't go down dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. And the things for our well-being are let's say let's say uh, less less contentious than than you know something you might need to manufacture for a war effort you know precisely and yet we still want the P95N2 masks oh definitely we still want drug production yeah we still want to be able to make and store you know the right amount of blood products we still want to be able to do all sorts of medical equipment mm. even if we can't build the capital item can we build all the disposables mm. like all the plastic tubing or all the needles or all the filters. All the things that you change for every new patient or change every day. Mm. We may not be able to make the complex device they all go in. But if that lasts 10 years, well, we probably don't need to be able to make that one. And you would imagine that it would it would be so essential to us living here that it would be almost regularly economically viable for someone to do that manufacturing in, in the sense that if under normal circumstances, a business that were to produce those widgets let's say whether it be the needles whatever it is Mm. could normally profit off just a standard situation does that make sense yeah and that if they've maintained those skills and that technical expertise Mm. when there are opportunities to do new things Mm. or take on extra things surely they're going to be better prepared and more adaptable to genuinely evolve into new situations successfully Mm. you know as sort of an agile business. Mm. 
So there's a lot that we actually need to be asking for. There's a lot that, that we, we could politically campaign on here and it doesn't need to just be how are people going to pay their mortgages, you know? No. Mm. Like we definitely want at the moment, you know, for anyone who's going to get paid even if they're home, fine, mm. they don't need mortgage relief. Mm. But for anyone who if they don't work doesn't get paid, why is the government futzing about with a multi-step policy package? Yeah. The fundamental one that should be implemented immediately is if you don't have security of income, we'll back your income. Mm-hmm. We'll cover it. If you've got security of income, the question is, is this coming out of your leave or will government subsidise that too? Mm. That may be dependent on industry, what you earn, all sorts of other things. There might be a compromise. Some of it's government, some of it's your company. Because the reality is, what's your company going to do if people are all at home and can't spend money? Oh, well, Yeah. <laughs> So it seems to me that, yes, parts of this might take a lot of time to get right, but the fundamentals of letting the majority of part-time and underemployed Australians know that if they're sick, they're fine, why is it taking this long? Mm. And why would we assume the government has a clue what it's doing when it can't grasp something so fundamental as if people don't earn, they don't eat? What are they going to do at home for that two weeks if they buy food weekly? I don't understand what, how, how you could even justify not giving the emergency or the the people who are most at likely risk. most at risk. I don't understand how you could justify not putting that into place immediately. And it seems to me a group that's really important here to think about is the proportion of older Australians who appear they're going to be more vulnerable to the virus, mm-hmm. who since the GFC have never necessarily entirely recovered economically from that hit yeah so they are dependent on the fact they work part-time since they retired yeah yeah because they didn't end with big super and yet they have just a bit too much for a pension so they are going to be as vulnerable as underemployed people as the young and yet more vulnerable to the virus Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that group is just a duh yeah (laughs) Why didn't that get sorted in the first week of talking about this? Yeah, Younger people's a bit different. There, it's far more the financial issue to make sure they can afford rent and food. Mm-hmm. They're probably not at massive risk unless for whatever reason they're immunocompromised. And some will be. Well, given, let's say, the many other societal issues that specifically young people have grown up with, and maybe are not taking care of their bodies in such a way that uh, perhaps... Good food's expensive, so actually their health isn't as good as it should be. No. Look at how many people go down at uni in the depths of winter with bad colds. Yeah. 19, 20-year-olds who you wouldn't imagine would go down in a screaming heap for a fortnight. Yeah. Or or people who just uh, always end up sick. Mm. Yeah, which is getting more and more common. Mm. So what we realise is the fact that stress reduces immuno capacity and stress is bad enough normally and we've now got a new health stress which also then becomes an economic stress Mm. that sounds like a recipe for young people who should you know be part of the 85 percent who even if they get it just get a cold for a week suddenly not being in the 85 percent but instead end up either taking a month to recover or ending up in hospital Mm. thus disrupting their life even more and costing more. You know, the interesting thing with this is, okay, if what I quickly saw on my phone today is right, you know, Joe Biden's going to be the Democrat you know, contender. Yeah, yeah the, the mini Super Wednesday yes. or Tuesday. Super Tuesday Part 2 or whatever yeah. the hell it's called, yeah. or Super Wednesday. Yeah. So what we're seeing is 
we're not going to get improved economic policy because of Bernie Sanders. Yeah. But if COVID-19 takes off, how the heck else are they going to pay to deal with the social, economic and political consequences, let alone the health cost, other than better economic policy than neoliberalism, which will say, oh, we don't have a surplus. We can only spend so much. Yeah. Well, that's not going to work, kids. Yeah. In the same way, it doesn't work to fight a war. All it feels like it's going to do, especially because it's is, it came from China and and you know is in many other countries more than it is in America. Uh, all I think it's going to do, let's say, for some states, is solidify kind of some protectionist mentalities, some some racism, right? Yeah. Well, I think there's a few things here, and I think it's good to probably do them one at a time. First thing, let's talk about the fact that for all of 2019 and a part of 2018. African swine flu was rampant in China. Yeah. And I'm not saying there's any paranoid conspiracy link between African swine flu and (laughs) COVID-19. But what I'm interested in is China really struggled to control African swine flu. Mm. It decimated, what do you call it, the national pig herd? Whatever you call, Mm. you know, all the pigs in China. The national pig herd. It's a Gumby phrase, but it might be the right phrase. I don't <laughs> know. Some agri dude or dudette, let me know. Okay. So pork became astronomically expensive. Mm-hmm. The imports from Europe, they were running out because, you know, even there, there was only so many pigs that could be turned into, you know, pork. How much pressure did that put on the wet markets to provide more animal protein to people who otherwise would have bought pork? How much is COVID-19 potentially jumping from another species to humans indirectly related to not dealing with a previous virus? They're not the same thing, Mm. but why are we believing that the Chinese Communist Party is doing such an outstanding job now when Mm. for over a year they did a pretty half-assed job Mm -hmm. on African swine flu? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the classic thing, the media reporting in Wuhan in the early weeks, look... Two hospitals built in two weeks. Ding dong, they're not hospitals, they're quarantine centres. A quarantine centre is a big building with lots of rooms and basic plumbing. It is not a hospital. If you were really ill, you were moved from a quarantine centre to a hospital. So even when it came down to Chinese people's lives, the CCP was still playing the status, save face, look good game. Yeah. It hauled the head of the CCP in Wuhan in for talking about the virus publicly, even though he was right. Mm -hmm. The Chinese police pulled in the first doctor who talked about it to his medical classmates going, there's a new virus and it's scary, be aware. Mm -hmm. Got dragged over the coals. An authoritarian state does what an authoritarian state does. Mm -hmm. It exercises control and uses threat to get its preferred outcome, and its greatest preferred outcome is maintaining its status. Mm -hmm. So under those circumstances, yes, it appears that infection numbers are going down in China. But why have we reported so thoughtlessly exactly what the CCP has presented to us? Mm -hmm. At a time when the Chinese people are genuinely under threat from their own regime and a virus, Isn't this the time to hold the CCP to account so that it looks after its people to the best of its ability? 
rather than to better its own image. But that's a whole political issue that listeners may or may not be interested in. <laughs> yeah, that's one part of it. I think we're, we've covered the conspiracy theorists who think, you know, it's a biological weapon. Um, if it was, it'd be more dangerous. Yeah. Otherwise, why would you release it? Yeah, and also... I. And in terms of the racism aspect that you brought up, yeah, yeah, the emptiest restaurants that appears in Australia at the moment are Chinese and Asian restaurants. Yeah, that's awful. You know, people, we live cheek and jowl near each other. Yeah. Whatever restaurant you go to, look around. You have no idea where the people two tables away were a week ago yep. and what they did. So support the food you like made by the person you like. You know what? A bunch of them in Adelaide especially shop right at the Adelaide Central Market, which supports Australian produce. Yep. Like local produce. Yeah. For all the restaurants. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, whatever perceived risk, I guess, that we have is it's really, it really, it only comes back to harm us in some sense because you're, you're just collapsing parts of the economy and, and then, you know, it's only as strong as it, as its weakest link and yeah. You're you're pulling a link out of a chain is maybe a better way to describe it. And um, weakening social bonds. Yeah. Like if food is how we become more connected and that currently isn't there as an option mm-hmm. and people are afraid, in a lot of ways it feels like just after 9-11, you know, when Muslims were being yeah. assaulted in the street and spat on in the street. You know, because of a single event, people changed their behaviour and labelled someone as other. What well, doesn't ever end well? And we are multiculturalism. Even if our version of multiculturalism needs work to work better, we are multicultural. It's not undoable. No. This is why it has to be in, you know, perfected. Mm-hmm. How we let ourselves be ourselves, but also know how to get along. Yeah. Knowing well, how to get along takes work, which means go eat something in an Asian restaurant because the people there love cooking for you and you used to love what they cooked. Yeah. Yeah. Honey chicken. Shed one chicken. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Yum. You know, I've avoided bringing this up to for as long as I can, but here comes the woke statement, as it were. You know, the real kind of virus, the real scary part about this is how the media has perpetuated each and every one of the problems that we've just talked about including, you know, perhaps some of the um, racist sentiment, however indirect that may be. Uh, it's also had, it's fueled some of the hysteria. It, yeah. If anything has overcompensated the other way, since people have given that kind of feedback that yeah. you know, they've been the ones responsible for some of the terrible things going on, yeah. um, they've overcompensated and and not really taken any responsibility for that either very basic stuff yeah this many people died today yeah how many people were released from hospital having recovered i'm not sure whether that comes from they need to fill time or whether it comes from people deserve to know and 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 have as much reported on this issue as possible, even though it's definitely We're not, not having thing. as much reported as possible. It's, We're having the same scary 15-second sound bites reported. Mm. I would much rather that a media crew eat in the same Asian restaurant five days in a row mm. and report every day on a nice person they chatted to at lunch. Yeah, yeah. Balance the freaking books. Yeah. Or report on today. 
this many people released from this major hospital having recovered. Yes. Yeah, this many people that, having left home detention able to go back to work and school. Today, this primary school was able to bring all of its kids back mm. who were home and they were so happy to be back at school. Mm-hmm. My experience with journalists is the journalists are fine. There's some gatekeeper in newsrooms who runs with if it bleeds, it leads, mm. who undoes the natural curiosity and open-mindedness and social goodwill of journalists. And I don't know what this creature's called. I assume they're chief producer or chief editor. Yeah, something like that. The the thing I'm I, I don't wanna as much as I agree, you know, I have problems with, let's say, police, but I don't have any problems with policemen them or police people. Ing. Yeah. Uh themselves. I have a I have a problem with policing. I don't have a problem with police, let's mm. say. Maybe there's a better way to describe it. However, I still feel like in the case, let's say, of journalists it is still their responsibility as the ones with the privilege to protest. It is very hard for me as just a standard citizen to protest to the media. The mm. only way that you could possibly make a change in that, a non-violent change, let's say, I think without from, from maybe a grassroots movement mm. would be that you could have the journalists refuse to write stories, refuse yeah. to work in those, you know, work on those kinds of stories. And yet to what extent now? Do they feel so precarious mm. that if they don't report in the suggested way, they'll be replaced? Yeah. Oh, oh, what's no, the absolutely. lifespan of a, of a journo? No, I think that's... Not many get-to-be-grown-up journos, do they? Yeah, you're right. No. no there's, and there's no such thing as uh, a lifelong journalist who's travelled the world and, you know, just with their laptop yeah. and, you know, backpack and, and does all that kind of thing. It really doesn't work like that anymore. And I think no. that's because you move up into those you know, promotions where you end up being the editor or... And you have so much to lose Yep, and then you if got you leave. stockholders breathing down your neck about exactly what you need to do or yep. you know, perhaps a Murdoch son or, or you know, yep. <laughs> whatever it is that's just holding you to account. And the real purpose of their entire job is lost in the business function. Yep, and um, yet the business function, if media is a business, and it most surely is, is to keep us happy and spending. Mm. And if reporting from your favorite Asian restaurant five days running and talking to the person beside you, how are you going? Mm. How are you coping? What's your strategy? Yeah. Surely that's better than the crap we're getting. Oh, undoubtedly. I'm sure there's a better way to do both. Inform and and entertain without terrifying. Yes. I think there are better ways to achieve the ends that they need to meet whilst also meeting some ends that we expect of them. Mm. And, and again, I would never want you know, an individual journalist, because I know some, to feel the responsibility of that. Mm. It, uh, and, and, by no, by, and I'm also not telling them to you know, put, put, put their job in jeopardy by protesting today and, and stop writing articles for whatever <laughs> mm. uh, business they work for. But in, in some respect, I, I hope that we could get to a point where we could empower and, and bring journalists on the side of, let's say, the people to hold their own business to account. Yeah. Um, it's difficult because, it's like you said, there are many people waiting in line to take that position. And this is the problem in such a competitive world where we've decided that competition is positive. Yeah. All competition does is wreck courage. Yeah. Because yeah. courageous people just get wiped off the game and replaced. Mm. And again, Tim's comment, most of my experience with journalists is they ask great questions and that material is what disappears in the final edited product. Mm-hmm. 
you know, which is why I have a suspicion of the people who don't actually ever come out on the street with a microphone. Because I like them. They're fun. <laughs> and my experience is cameramen and camera women are awesome. Yeah. They should be allowed to talk because yes. they spend a lot of time watching and learning and as a consequence tend to be very good watchers and learners. Yeah. Like in reality, I'm not a journalist. I'm a cameraman. Mm. I think is yeah, well, I'm not a cameraman, but But you think like that you're observing and putting the pieces together. Yeah. So in in this situation, I'm not a long-form journalist sitting down with David Olney. I'm the cameraman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what I am, but I have fun. No. Um you're a host. You're a you're a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> I am the sponge. Hopefully I don't Absorb COVID-19. Okay, there's a twist. Yeah. I was thinking about this today and I was talking to a friend of mine over lunch. At the moment, for the majority of us who aren't too old and aren't immunocompromised, COVID-19 is unpleasant but not awful. Yeah. Would it actually be better to get it in the next few weeks? I absolutely feel like In its current form... And this is where I reiterate my intro. We are not not medical experts. We are not providing medical advice. We're asking interesting social, political and economic questions. Would it be socially better for many societies for significant numbers of people to get and recover from COVID-19 in the next few months before it mutates? Even though we are not medical professionals i think it would be a safe bet to say yes only because they're working on a vaccine so clearly they must think so like Mm. clearly there is a potential reality where you could vaccinate yourself to that Mm. um, and they're just finding the controlled and best way to do it Mm. so Uh, going through it as a cold for a week mm. to be a bit more certain about your physical well-being over the next 18 months before there's a formal immunization program Mm -hmm. maybe isn't the worst of all things and if i need to be walking into a university and teaching every week and i need to be getting on planes and going places to meetings with people who've got on planes to go places to go to meetings i'd much rather think in terms of if i get this at the moment being a healthy person who's not too old if i got it the great likelihood is it would be an unpleasant week but hopefully from that I would get the benefit of not having an even more unpleasant week with it later. Mm. That seems a reasonable thing to go. Again, looking for the potential silver lining in things. Yeah. I still don't want to lick anyone's hand, but that's a whole other issue. Yeah, well, (laughs) I think there are a few other reasons for that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a guide dog. (laughs) So all in all, I guess not enough to panic about. Be alert, Mm. but not alarmed probably one of the best lines that came out post 9-11, which most people never absorbed. Yep. Secondly, seeming uh, it seems that there's a lot that we need to be asking of our governments in relation to preparedness for things like this and also to assist people who are most at risk of even specifically this case and, and setting a precedent for the future. Yep. yep. We need to be working on what sovereign well-being capability mm. do we think is a minimum than an advanced liberal democracy with cash to spend on well-being capability? Mm. It seems, thirdly, let's say that 
this is an opportunity to stand out from a pack really and establish yourself as a contributing mem- member to your community someone who respects and includes all as we and currently that kind are of stuff doing. will be remembered definitely and i think at another time when perhaps we can find a good guest for it we can potentially talk about far more scary things that we could be worrying about yeah again we thought we'd scare the crap out of all of you last year by talking to richard heinberg mm. but trust us if we want to be scary we'll make it scary <laughs> well i I'd, I'd certainly love to do uh, something that talks about antibiotic resistance something about a transmissible spongiform uh, encephalopathy and Bambi disease yeah <laughs> killing all the deer which by the way technically COVID-19 is well it, it is transmissible because that's how it first appeared a lot of these are they come from what, what, what like zoo zoo tonic or something mm. nodic zoonotic jump, jump the species yeah barrier. yeah yeah, they jump from one species to another. Mm. Uh, and that's God, that's scary. That is so scary. Mm. And that's the thing. They've got to mutate to do that. Mm. But the question is, how long do you get before they mutate again? Mm. What? Well, yeah, the historical precedents for diseases and things like this uh, are very, very scary. Mm. Yeah. So I think there's definitely room to talk about that. But also, you know, don't believe the hype. There's a, a technique that you used earlier where you were looking at the contexts of let's say some of the worst affected mm. places like Italy that's called coupling taking things in the context yep making sure you see all the pieces that contribute that's right yes the numbers in Italy look worse than anywhere else for good reasons mm. so it's very sad for the Italians but also is why the Austrians are closing their border but don't sound too worried yeah because they don't believe they have the same set of contextual problems yes so and that is good leadership really Mm. Um, so there are some examples that we could uh, follow in that sense there are plenty of of examples that we could follow in many aspects uh, surrounding this so um, uh, alert but not aware uh, sorry aware but not alert (laughs) no alert Alert but not alarmed alarmed. thank you aware yeah alert but not alarmed is a good one to, to take and best of luck listeners if you do perhaps contract COVID-19 and uh, we hope you don't only to the extent that we don't wish harm on anyone (laughs) commit yourself to being part of the 85% yeah yeah exactly (laughs) and that's what we'll hope for you and we'll hope for us Mm. alright well thank you David for that thank you Tim goodbye listeners hasta la vista listeners hello listeners if you're enjoying our podcast please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Listener.